Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. How are you doing out there, ladies and gentlemen? This is Tim Banal with BanalofAmerica.com. Welcome to yet another edition of Banal of America Audio Season 1. I want to thank everybody who checked out the Jim Mars season premiere over the last couple weeks. I'm just totally amazed at the downloads and feedback we got on this. And I hope you stick around and enjoy the rest of Banal of America Audio Season 1. Tonight, we feature Marshall Klarfeld, author of Adam, The Missing Link. I lay out Marshall's bio in the interview, so we'll skip right ahead to the actual interview this week. This interview was conducted on August 5th, 2005, with Marshall Klarfeld, author of Adam, The Missing Link. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is Marshall Klarfeld. He's the author of Adam, The Missing Link. Uh, here's a little bit about him from his website. I'm sure he's going to give us some more background anyway when we talk. Uh, as an undergraduate student at Caltech in the late 1940s, Marshall was fascinated by the advanced scientific knowledge found in the Bible's story of creation. Genesis describes the creation of our solar system as occurring in a six-day time frame. His question was, how did this 5,000-year-old Bible description of the birth of our solar system disclose the advanced scientific information? The ignition of our sun occurs at the fourth day in a six-day creation process, thousands of years before we discovered it. Uncertain how to unravel this puzzle, he questioned his Nobel laureate professors, Linus Pauling and Richard Feynman. Their powerful answers stayed with him for decades and inspired him to pursue the knowledge that he is now able to share with the reader's of Adam, the Missing Link. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, Marshall Klarfeld to Banal of America Audio. Thank you, Tim. That was uh, very precise. <laughs> well, why don't, you, uh, why don't you give me a little bit of your background before you got into this, this area of research? Okay. I, uh, as I say, I entered Caltech in 1947, which was kind of an auspicious year because Roswell occurred uh, just uh, across the state lines. And the words UFO came into our uh, language at that time. I spent four years, graduated in 1951, uh, went on to the 30-year career in industry, working for Wallace Johnson up in Berkeley with a company called Upright, and then uh, retired. Found out that I wasn't the retiring type, so I, uh, after traveling extensively in the Pacific Rim, got into real estate. Then I decided that my real passion in life, Tim, was to find answers to these questions that have been haunting me ever since uh, my formative years in college at Caltech. And uh, there were all kinds of questions that I didn't know the answers to. And as I researched, um, I found the Internet was a wonderful instrument. It just really was able to produce answers to things that um, before then I, I was, you know, I could spend hours in a library, but in, on the Internet you can find things pretty quickly. Ran into uh, the works of Zechariah Sitchin. And Zechariah Sitchin, I read all nine of his books after I discovered him and most of his articles, uh, gave enough information that the pieces started to fit together. And once I saw the mosaic uh, forming up and, and kind of making sense to me, I said, well, now, how do I prove this? Here's a guy who's got a theory, and it seems like it works. 
we were genetically engineered, basically, is what his theory says. So I proceeded to try to find the physical facts uh, that would verify the theory. And they're right here on planet Earth. I went around, uh, as I say, doing my investigative research and put together a series of um, artifacts, texts, and a really what I'd call um, a way to handle the information. I, I created what's to me, I don't know if it's ever been done before, was a theory of information transfer. And what I mean by that, Tim, is that uh, all the things that I was encountering had information stored in them, but they need to be put into categories. So um, I started with the first one, which I called SIT, Stored Information Text. I called that uh, the information coming out of the cuneiform tablets. Okay. Yeah. This was information that was being stored in a text form. The second item was uh, the cylinder seals. It fascinated me. These little stone uh, engra engraved uh, devices which you could pat out on wet clay and roll the cylinder across the wet clay and you get a positive kind of picture story. And that's a device. It's stored information device. So I call that the SID, stored information device. And then I went on to the pyramids and I call those stored information structures, SID. FC, and uh, then the stored information uh, sculptures. In those four categories, I was able to take and look at uh, all the information that I was gathering, and then I decided to write a book. You used decision work for your research. Um, what other sources did you did you find uh, that you were looking into? Some of the Von Daniken stuff. Um, um, I don't know. Like, I, I've what read Von Daniken, but uh, I really, you know, besides. Um, I tried to verify the translations of Sitchin. In other words, I was skeptical of, of what one man was saying the thing said, and then I did some research on the um, Sumerian language, which is what the original tablets were written in, and I found out, Tim, that it's a, it's a peculiar language. Uh, Sumerian is unlike any other language uh, that exists on our planet. It's the first written language, and it is subject to, you know, a variety of uh, uh, translations. So I, I investigated uh, four or five other people who had translated, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. I used that as my kind of yardstick. Okay, yeah. And I found out that the, they, uh, they pretty much said the same thing. Now, Sitchin claims that he had uh, translated over 2,000 uh, tablets that dealt with the... Um, early formation of our solar system and the uh, creation of, of mankind. Uh, these were, were texts that uh, he's published in, in various books, and I found them to be very fast. In fact, I quote him quite often in my book, if you've read it. I've taken a look at it. Yeah, you'll notice that uh, when I see an artifact uh, that, that matches up with the tablet translation, I put them together in the book. Now, the book is, is not like most, uh, you know, complex scientific journals that tell the story. I've reduced it into kind of an eight and a half by 11, uh, you know, like Life magazine format. So it, it comes out and has a bunch of pictures, like uh, probably 145 pictures with a little bit of text explaining what the pictures mean. Yeah, I took a look at the book, and uh, I was actually really impressed by that because, um, when I was thinking, when I saw I saw one of the pictures had the uh, it 
I'm not sure what exactly it was. It was stone, but it had a, it looked like a helicopter on it. Yeah. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, that's uh, that's on the uh, Egyptian temple at um, below Cairo. It's a it's kind of an interesting uh, artifact because it it shows not only the uh, device that looks like a helicopter, it also shows um, what was the ark, which is kind of like a submarine. Yep. Yep. And, and then it shows um, a glider which could be a space shuttle. And all of these images, which are over 3,000 years old and, you know, found on this um, ceiling of this, this temple in Egypt, uh, seem to me to say, well, you know, what were they looking at? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the folks that were sculpting this thing, Tim, had to see something that looked like that. And I'm not sure those are exactly what they were, but I was fascinated by the submarine with the snorkel stem on it. Yeah, yeah. Because Sitchin's theory is that the uh, flood was a tsunami, you know, that came from the South Atlantic when the ice shelf got sent in there by the uh, passage of Nibiru that came through one time and shoved this huge amount of ice into the ocean, causing this huge tsunami. And an ark wouldn't survive floating on top of the water. It would have to be kind of a submersible design to, to actually survive that kind of a event. And, um, yeah, and the, and the people who are listening right now, actually, they can see the picture we're talking about. It's on the preview. You can preview the book at adamthemissinglink.com. So yes. if they're wondering what we're talking about, they can actually see the picture. So that might be helpful. Uh, Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did I did make available about five or six pages that they can click. There's a little button on the bottom of the picture of the book, Adam the Missing Link, and when you uh, hit that, you get inside the book and see three or four or five pages. Yeah, so people who are like, what are they, what are they talking about? They can go and check it out now while they're listening to the audio, which is always nice. Right. And um, what I liked about, about that uh, part of the book, and I'm sure the rest of the book too, is that with a lot of these textbooks, you can't, you know, you hand someone a book, you don't know if they're going to read it or not. You know, they might skim it. Well, this book, with all the pictures, you can actually show someone and say, well, look at this, you know. Look at here. How do you explain this? How do you explain that? Instead of expecting them to read. People are lazy. They're not going to read nowadays. That's right. You're absolutely right. And, and thank you for mentioning that, Tim, because that's part of my design. My design of getting this information out, which is, you know, some of it is, is a repetition of what, what Sitchin has said. Some of it's new that I've discovered. But the whole idea is to keep the dialogue going. This is a story that needs to get worldwide attention. It just is crying to be uh, learned and, and taught in schools. Now, this big debate going on in the cover of Time magazine this week uh, that's going on in our schools is what do we teach our children? You know, and, and most of the, the argument that's going on is between evolution and uh, ID, which is called intelligent design, and that's kind of a, another way of saying creationism, what the Bible says. So we got the story of the Bible, and we got the story of what Darwin wrote in his book, and the science folks in the schools say, you know, they only want to teach proven scientific things, and you can't prove religion. That's the Bible part of it. Well, I'm saying that this story of Adam the Missing Link, uh, the story of uh, genetic engineering as it unfolds in my book, is really what should be taught because it, it, it shows that each side on that argument is half right. You know, the 
evolutionists are half right and the creationists are half right. But the true uh, facts, and when I ask some of these science teachers who are in the Kansas area, the debate is, the debate is really hot in Kansas. Yeah. I said, well, how do you how do you tell your kids who built the pyramids? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a scientific uh, creation. It's one of the most magnificent structures on the planet, and we don't know how to explain who built it. Well, if you take the story of uh, genetic engineering and the facts that I show in my book, Adam, the Missing Link, you'll get a possible answer. I'm not saying, you know, exactly that's the way it happened, but it's the closest thing, Tim, that I could find. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you say you, uh, you present some of the system stuff and some new stuff, so why don't you uh, let me know a little bit about what this new stuff is. Okay. Um, you know, I don't have to give away the whole farm here, but give, you know, let well, us no, know. Well, no, that's all right. You know, I, you know I, what I mean. I, I know. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me was why were the pyramids built? Well, the, in the text they said they needed a beacon for navigational purposes when they were orbiting the Earth and coming in. They had the twin 12,000, uh, 17,000-foot 12, Mount Ararat peaks that were snow-covered all year round, but they needed uh, an anchor for that in, in, in uh, Egypt, Cairo area. There wasn't anything, so they, they decided to build these two huge mountains. Actually, there were twin mountains, which would replicate the twin mountains at Mount Ararat. And if they covered them with the po highly polished stones that glistened in the sun, they could line up the, peak, the line between the two pyramids and the, and the uh, mountains of Turkey. Okay, so taking that as a base, I said, okay, they must have had some other problems. Now, if you go to page 36 in the book, you'll see how I got into this. It's uh, the Easter Island story. And there's a little picture there on page 36 that shows the Earth with its dark side and its light side. And if you're orbiting uh, around the equator in your ship, you go from the light side of the Earth to the dark side of the Earth. And then if you look at the map of the Earth laid out just below that, and you've seen this at NASA's uh, Houston Space Center, they have these lines that go up and go down. It's kind of a sinusoidal curve, mm -hmm. and that, that is what you see because the Earth tilted on its axis, and as it spins under you and you're going around it, your path of sight follows this sinusoidal curve. Yeah. So I said, okay. When the pyramids go dark, What's the light that they've got? And I looked at the Easter Island statues, and they all face east, and they're all kind of replications of the, what the Anunnaki look like, according to cylinder seals, and their heads are tipped up, and they have polished coral eyes. Ah. And these 900 pairs of eyes looking up in the east will reflect the sun. And believe it or not, Easter Island is 12 hours from... Cairo, huh, where the pyramids are, so that the, they would be in the daylight when Cairo's in the dark. Yeah. And, I, and it made sense to me. I said, you know, why would these statues put on an island in the middle of nowhere? I mean, that, that island is 2,000 miles from anything. Absolutely. But it works as a beacon. So then I started thinking about beacons. And I said, there's got to be some other beacons that will give them uh, direction as they're coming in, because, you know, Unlike it is today, they didn't have the uh, ability of a uh, uh, infrastructure full of uh, telescopes and, and 
radio signals that they could use. The Earth had nothing on it at the time they were using it. So I found a place called Newgrange, which is uh, in uh, Ireland. Well, first I had uh, Stonehenge. Stonehenge is on page 21, and uh, Newgrange is on page 38. Now, Newgrange, the, the Anunnaki, by the way, the Anunnaki is what the Sumerians called these folks, and I guess they called that themselves too. So in the Bible, there's a reference to a group called the Nephilim, and the Nephilim were described in the Bible as those who came from heaven to earth. And the uh, Sumerians, who were the first recorded civilization on our planet, uh, called them the Anunnaki. So if we use that word, your audience will understand what I'm referring to. Yeah. These are the uh, extraterrestrials who came to this planet 450,000 years ago and uh, started doing their thing. Well, when they built Stonehenge, uh, Tim, yep. on page 21, you'll see the original... There weren't any stones. All it was was a big circle, a trench really, with 56 uh, three-foot diameter chalk holes. They eventually became the Aubrey holes, because this guy John Aubrey discovered them. <laughs> but they reflect. In other words, if you had a circle of 56 stones, and by the way, if you filled the trench with water, and you look at it from the sky, it's black. Water reflects is black from up above. So you get a black circle with 56 uh, white dots reflecting upward. And similar at the same time was uh, Newgrange. Newgrange was an uh, astronomical device which also had uh, a highly reflective surface. That's on page 38. And if you draw a line between Newgrange and Stonehenge, guess what? So it intersects the line from the pyramids to Mount Ararat at Baalbek, huh. which is where the landing platform was. Huh. Very interesting. Uh, as, I, as I'm an engineer, you know, that's what I studied and graduated as, and I look at things perhaps a little bit, uh, I'm a tire kicker. Yeah. And I, want, I want to get a hold of something. I want to see what it's made of. I want to see how it works. And everything I've looked at in my research on this entire project has been approached in that fashion. Why was this done? How does it work? Yeah. And what I just described to you was a little bit of extra information that, that and came up. Now, by the way, there's, an, there's a, another piece of it. Okay. Uh, in France, at a place called Carnac, which is on the coast of France, mm -hmm. there are over 3,000 stones in a line, or in several lines. And if you look down at it from above, the position of Stonehenge and uh, Newgrange connected with, I mean, the line between them is what gets you to the ballback. Offset is uh, the same offset as the Orion Belt configuration. Now, the, the pyramids at, at Giza have that same configuration. There's two big ones and one little one. Yeah. And it's it's cocked at an angle between the two that are in line. And I, I'm guesstimating that uh, maybe they, they did that for that reason, to try to uh, fulfill every place else they did it. In, in the uh, Mesoamerica, when they built the pyramids there, uh, they did the same thing. 
you know, two big ones and then a little one off at an angle, which uh, was the configuration of the Orion belt. Now, the other thing that you ask is, you know, what, what else did I discover? If you remember the, the page that showed um, the Pioneer plaque, uh, well, I've seen the Pioneer plaque, so I haven't okay, seen the page Okay, well, it's on page 9 in my book. There's a depiction of uh, what we look like and uh, the number of planets that we are and where this uh, spaceship came from. But the, off on the left, Tim, there's a starburst design. It's actually a three-dimensional map of our solar system. Not just our solar system, but the galaxy that we're in, which is the Milky Way. And it's pointed on the f uh, 14 pulsars. If you took the 14 pulsars and intersected them, that would show where our little sun and its uh, nine planets at that time were. So I said, why did Carl Sagan and his guys do that? They also did it on the Voyager 1 and 2 records, the gold records. They put that same starburst map. And I said, well, I guess they wanted to speak in a language that somebody who would look at it could understand, okay? Yeah. All right. We go to the Nazca plane with the lines, everybody's, including Von Donegan, uh, remark about. And on page 49 in my book, I discovered and reproduced a starburst configuration exactly like the one that we sent out into space. And I said, well, now, here is a map, a three-dimensional star map, perhaps showing where they came from. And I showed that at the bottom of page 49. And I don't think anybody's hooked that up ever before. Now, I remember you saying, Carl Sagan, uh, the first, was he the one that designed the plaque, right? He and his group, yeah. Yeah, and you said the first language they used was Sumerian? Yes, on, that was on the records, on the gold records on Voyager. Yeah. And they had 55 languages saying hello. You know, so yeah. That they could, and the first language they used was Sumerian, which is a 6,000-year-old language that's not spoken anymore. And I said, yeah, I wonder why they use that language. Exactly. That's what I was just about to ask you. Why do you, do you think that was uh, – well, why do you think they did it? Okay. Uh, there's a, there's a problem we have with our scientific community, Tim. You've probably run into this before. They're kind of in a closet. Oh, yeah. They don't want to come out. You know, they're afraid that what their peers will think of them if they say something or do something that recognizes that this is perhaps a story that they should be researching and talking about, but they haven't. And I think Carl Sagan maybe knew that, and uh, he because of his popularity, uh, said, well, we're going to do this. And they did it, and nobody thought about it. But he was saying he knew. It was a way of him saying he knew. Yeah. But he wasn't coming out of the closet. And also, by the way, in one of his stories, I think it was one of the books he wrote, Contact? Yeah. Uh, his spaceship is called uh, Gilgamesh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's interesting to speculate on these things, Tim, but uh, so he, may been, he may have been tipping his hand a little bit. A little bit. And then there's a picture of him uh, that I reproduced in the book uh, standing against the building, and over his left shoulder is the depiction of the 10th planet. It's the winged globe. Ha, ah, really? Yeah, that's on the back of Contact, 
so, you know, he pictured the author on the back of the book, and there he is with over his left shoulder is the tenth planet. Huh. So, I don't know. This speculation on my part, I can't, can't prove it. But uh, I'm really on a kind of a, a mission, you might say, to get the scientific community to come out and start talking. Now, I just saw a movie. It's by a guy named Timothy Ferris. And I'm going to contact him. He's a physics professor up at the University of California, Berkeley. Yeah. And it's a PBS home video. It's called Life Beyond Earth. I recommend renting it and, and looking at it because in it he has some beautiful pictures of how the universe works. But more important, he has seven, eight, nine top scientists talking about, yes, there is life out in the universe. All we have to do is make contact with it. In other words, they're all talking about uh, this. Uh, in fact, the one gal that's in there is uh, Frances uh, Cordova. She was the chief scientist with NASA. Oh, really? And she's about 40 years old, and uh, she's just charming. And, you know, along with these other heavy-hitting scientific people, every one of them, Tim, says, yes, there is life out there, the law of probability says there is, and that's, of course, what Feynman told me when I asked him that way back. Now, my question to them is, what makes you think they haven't already been here? Exactly. It's only 450,000 years ago. That's nothing. All of these other systems that these, this life exists on are billions, billions of years older than we are. And their technology's got to be, you know, kazoo's beyond us. <laughs> So what, what's so impossible to, to imagine that if you have the proof here and you see all these things that you can't explain, that they've been here, that this story is true, that we were genetically engineered? I mean, after all, we're going to do it ourselves. Exactly. We're very close to doing it right now. Why don't you, um, for the people that are just completely clueless to the whole uh, ET progenitor concept, why don't you give a thumbnail sketch of what exactly that is? I'm sure there's people listening who, who are sort of trying to wrap their head around this that haven't actually had it spelled out for them. Okay, okay. Here's, here's the way it goes, uh, just as concise as I can put it. <laughs> uh, it's according to the story that they wrote. This is there. Uh, 450,000 years ago, um, travelers, space travelers, from a planet that already exists in our solar system called Nibiru. That's the name of their home planet. It was captured billions of years ago. It was floating free in space. And Neptune's gravity caught it and brought it in, and it uh, became part of our home system of planets. Uh, they had a problem. They're, um, since they have an atmosphere and they had their own generation of heat from their internal uh, system on the planet. They had a hole in their atmosphere, Tim, and that, the hole was leaking their everything out. And they tried everything to close it up, and they couldn't close it up, and they finally decided that the one thing that would close it up are flakes of gold. And they didn't have any gold on their planet, so they took a survey of the solar system that they were in, found Earth as the gold, came to Earth 450,000 years ago, started mining the gold, and sending it back to their home planet to close the hole. Now, my uh, nearest uh, thing to that is that all of our astronauts have visors. And on the visors, they have gold. 
it's a gold uh, coating, and you flip the visor down, and totally keeps the sun, reflects the sun out. So if you put flakes of gold in the hole in your atmosphere, enough of it, you could reflect the sun out and close the hole. Huh. Anyway, that's the story. And and about 200,000 years ago, uh, there was a mutiny amongst their workers who were digging in these African mines, which are two miles deep and we're still deep digging in those mines today, two miles deep, and it's not easy to do. It's hard work. It's hot and so forth. Oh, yeah. Uh, they said not digging anymore. And so the solution was either to abandon the project and, uh, you know, lose their, their home planet and come here and live, or one of the leaders said, we could make a worker here. Uh, there are, you know, there are all these hairy creatures that are around us. There's the Homo erectus that was existing on Earth at that time. We put our mark on it. We can make a primitive worker. So they did. They, they, they described the experiments that they went through, genetically engineering the eggs of the uh, Homo erectus female. And you know, I can go into great detail on that, but I won't. They finally achieved their first successful. Uh, genetic engineered new species. Now, this was against the prime directive. <laughs> they knew that they shouldn't be met, but it was a matter of survival for them. If they did not do this, they couldn't survive on their home planet. So they created us. They created humanity by jump-starting Homo erectus, putting some of their DNA into the eggs of a female Homo erectus and producing what they called Adamu, the first successful human was Adamu. And the story went on that, you know, they created lots of them, and then they uh, solved their problem. And now did they leave? Did they leave Earth after? Um, oh, okay. You know, uh, what, what happened? Fast, fast forward. <laughs> oh, all right. I didn't, I didn't know if you were... Yeah, all right. <laughs> no, no. Actually, the, the, the humans uh, produced themselves. They were able to genetically engineer because uh, clones cannot reproduce themselves. They're sterile so that they had to tinker with the anatomy again to make uh, the humans be able to produce themselves, because they were being produced by the Anunnaki females. They were birth mothers. And the language that the birth mothers were talking to, these babies that they were producing, was Samarian. So I think that the Samarian language is the Anunnaki's language. That's the way I figured that out. But anyway, we became very populous. We thrived. and. Um, there was a flood. The whole flood story, by the way, is told in my book um, by the first printed story that ever appears on our planet is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the 11th tablet of that 12 tablet story is the story of the flood. And I use that because I think it's an excellent uh, insight into how they transferred information to us. But once they got to the point where um, they had gotten enough gold and they had, um, uh, you know, saved their planet. Uh, we had advanced to a certain point where uh, they were helping us. They had te technology transfers. An example of that, Tim, is the Samarian civilization 9,000 years ago appears with all these firsts. And the anthropologists are not able to explain to anybody how all that happened, well, if you just understand that there was a more advanced civilization parallel to ours that gave them all this information and, and materials, it makes sense.
So I think what happened maybe 2000, maybe 1200 BC, um, they felt that we were successfully started because they had been told that their destiny was to come to this planet to create us, and it was our destiny, mankind's destiny, to inherit this planet. In order to inherit the planet and handle it, they had to have given us certain uh, informations, which they did. So my guess is that they phased off the planet because they didn't need the gold anymore and they um, uh, didn't need to be interrelated with us. Now, there was a problem, Tim, yeah. huge problem. They'd been here for so long that there was some of them in the, on the mother planet, and they were saying that you can't come back. If you come back, you're going to die because you adjusted to a different habitat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's many more facts to that story which I, I put into the book so that people can understand the whole concept of uh, how we were created, why we were created, and what they did while they were here. And, and, and I tell you, <laughs> this is kind of another thing, Tim, that maybe you've, you've caught on to, too, is that if we have their genes, and if we are kind of like them, and in effect, they're our ancestors, Yeah, we act very much like they did. Yeah. If you, read, if you read some of their exploits, they were warlike people, they fought in clans, and they had this uh, incredible sexual appetite. <laughs> that sounds like a human race for sure. Yeah, exactly. Now, you said that, uh, they, that they were told that it was their destiny to come here and to make the human race? Yes. Where did they get that message from? Okay, thank you for asking that question because it's an important part of my, my story. Their deity was called the creator of all. He's the one that created the universe, or it created the universe, and they paid attention to what messages. They got uh, dream messages from the creator of all. And during the flood situation, when Enlil, who was the leader, said, you know, I, this is, we know this flood's coming when Nibiru comes through because it's going to knock the ice shelf into the ocean, and these, mankind is too noisy, and there's too many of them, and I want done with them. He was, he was really into getting rid of us. Yeah. His brother, Enki, gets this dream message. This is all in the 11th tablet of Gilgamesh. That's why I say it's such an important story, because that, that's the feature of it. Message comes from the creator of all that uh, the destiny of the Anunnaki was to come to Earth to create mankind, but the destiny of mankind is to inherit the planet. Therefore, they must save them. And Enki was given the information of how to save them, which, of course, was the Ark uh, story. You know, Noah and all the animals. But that message was something that uh, when the flood was over and Enki and Enlil came down to see the damage because it was horrendous what happened. And then they encounter Noah and, and his people on this you know, vessel coming, coming to rest on the mountainside. Enlil's furious. He looks, because they all swore an oath. Enlil made them all swear an oath that they wouldn't help mankind to survive. And he turns on his brother, his half-brother, actually, and he says, you know, you did this. And, and Enki says, oh, wait a minute. He says, I got a 
dream message for the Creator of all, and our destiny was to come here and create mankind, and their destiny is to inherit the earth. That's why they were saved by what I did. His brother, Enlil, does a 180-degree turn. Well, if, if, if the destiny, if the Creator of all said that's the destiny, we've got to help him. That's, you know, and that's when all this transfer started. Huh. So all the creation of Sumeria and everything, that and uh, yeah. all the information they gave us, that all came after the flood? The wheel, music, art, astrology, astronomy. I mean, all those things existed in the early diggings around the Sumerian civilization, and everybody said, you know, they arrived with all their marble. <laughs> <laughs> what is, what's the mainstream uh, anthropologist explanation? They just don't offer one? They or can't. Do they have a they can't. It, I mean, it goes against every rule that they have created in how evolution takes place and how societies build slowly and how cities, you know, people form into groups and da-da-da-da-da. Now, interesting parallel, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> There's another story when Enki gets tossed out of Egypt and uh, goes over to the New World and forms a whole new civilization, which is the Indian civilization over there. Okay. The same thing happens. The pyramids are built, and all of the uh, transfers of astronomy, astrology, writing, new, new writing is, is developed, the Mayan writing is a new writing, and the calendar, and so forth. But there's one thing that was withheld in the new civilization, the new world, and that was the wheel. See, the wheel was given to the Samarians, huh. and you won't find any evidence in the New World civilizations of the Incas, the Aztecs, uh, the Olmecs, all those folks, of a wheel. Is there a reason for that? I don't uh, no, you can, I can speculate. I'll tell you what my speculation is. Okay, yeah. I didn't know if, there was, if it was said somewhere in the text or... No, no, it's not said anywhere. It's just, I saw this and I said, uh-huh. Yeah. You, you can control people better if they don't have a wheel. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's just a guess on my part. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wheels cause chariots, cause wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People become too mobile, they move around. I heard you, you speaking before and you talked about uh, how there's a lot of parallels in the various religions yes. uh, to the, you know, the Anunnaki stories. Yes, there's a flood story in almost every religion around the world, no matter where you go, even people who don't have religions, who just have stories. There's a parallel in the flood story. Kingship. One of the things that was given to mankind was how you rule each other. And kingship was their, was the Anunnaki's form of government. They had kings. So yeah. they, uh, they gave us that. And the um, interesting thing about that is that it still exists in some of the Hawaiian history, is that the way they had the top purebred leader was that you married your sister. <laughs> The king had to marry his sister. And the pr product of that, of course, was a pure bloodline. And that's what uh, Enlil is. In other words, in, in the story in my book, the two main characters uh, from the Anunnaki are Enlil, the purebred from the sister and the father, and Enki, who was born from a concubine. Although Enki was the firstborn son, he didn't get to be the king. He wasn't in line for succession to the king because he wasn't. His mother wasn't his father's sister. Yeah. So that that kind of uh, you know goes goes to the the uh, the history. And if you, if you look at the 
the current garb of the uh, the terrorists that we're dealing with in the uh, eastern part of the world, the Islamic, and you look at the cylinder seals of the Anunnaki and how they dressed, it's exactly the same. Oh, really? As they're trying to trying to flip back to the founders. Uh, now, how do you think the, the various uh, world religions are affected by this hypothesis? Like, do you think uh, okay, well, can, they well, up, can they coexist with this? Can they ad adopt it into their belief structure? Yes, yes. I, I would hope. My hope is that once they realize that we all came from the same place and that we splintered uh, throughout history and created uh, different forms of, of religion, but the origin of uh, of all the major religions in the world is the same. And uh, what my hope is, you know, unfortunately, the majority of the slaughter that has gone on in the name of my God's the right God since civilization began has been horrendous. And if we could put a stop to uh, religious warfare, when people understand that they're all the same, that they all came from the same heritage, that the uh, Anunnaki were our creators and that the uh, prophets or whatever you want to call the others who they revere and, and worship uh, came from the same place. We might eventually, it's going to take quite a while, uh, get rid of religious warfare. I would hope. That's goal number one. Uh, the second thing is that um, if you look at our genetic makeup, here's one of the things that you can do. You look at the human genome study that was done in 2001. Yeah. Uh, again, humans are about 25,000 plus or minus genes. Yeah. But there's 223 genes in our profile that aren't accounted for. They have no history. They have no uh, predecessors. And the people who did the survey are trying to figure out well, where the hell these genes come from. Well, they came from the Anunnaki. They are, we all have that. Every, every one of us on this planet are genetically connected to this uh, lineage. Now, touching on the religious aspect of it, now, I know the... Uh a lot of this ties in with the Old Testament, and I'm sure you've, um, a lot of this is probably speculation on your part here, uh, but I'm sure you thought about uh, how does Jesus, the, the religious figure, fit into all this? Do you have an opinion on, on what, um, when you strip it from the, when you strip the, uh, you know, the religious story off mm -hmm. and looking at it from the perspective we are, uh, where do you think Jesus fits into this? Well, um, I can I can give you an answer, and I will in a minute, but I want you to remember the history of the three major religions. Um, Abraham was one of the chosen leaders that the Anunnaki selected to uh, work for them, be a military man. His firstborn son was uh, Ishmael, who was uh, born from Hagar, which was Sarah's Abraham's wife's servant. She was an Arab. So Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham, and then Isaac, after the covenant was made, became the firstborn son of Sarah and Abraham. 
So here we have uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam from the same uh, person, Abraham. Now, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was born from uh, Mary and a father. And he preached uh, a form of Judaism that was uh, very much similar to what we see today in the Old Testament. The Anunnaki were revered by the Sumerians as lords. And they, and one of the reasons that the, the intermarriage thing happened was that some of the Anunnaki lords uh, coveted females of, of mankind and produced offspring who were giants. And this kind of goes back to the history of uh, the Bible somewhat, but also um, you had um, female, human females producing uh, strong uh, giants. In the, in the Battle of Troy, you have the fight between Hector and Achilles. And Achilles' mother said that Achilles' father was Zeus. Zeus was an Anunnaki. So the son of a leader, Jesus was the, the son of God. And at that time, uh, in the uh, Jewish religion, they always predicted a Messiah as part of the religion, and their God was Yahweh. And if Jesus was the son of Yahweh, I'm not saying that I can prove this or that it's true at all, Tim, but I'm oh, just yeah. saying that this has happened before in history, that, that leaders have been produced by genetic uh, intermarriage of uh, humans and, and uh, the Anunnaki. It's not, not un, unheard of before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what happened, a new religion was born. Uh, it was based on Judaism, but it, uh, it grew and uh, became the official religion of the Romans around 300 A.D. And up till then, the Romans worshipped the, the same 12 gods and with different names <laughs> that the Sumerians did. You know, if you look through history of, of, of the... Uh, characters of, of the leaders. Uh, I'll give an example. Uh, Enki was a water god. His brother was the leader, Enlil. Okay, we go start with the Romans. Romans had uh, Jupiter, Jupiter and his brother uh, Neptune. Neptune was the water god. In the Greeks, we had Zeus and um, Poseidon were brothers and leaders. So here, you know, these are the same identities down through 6,000 years of time where humanity worshipped these 12 leaders until Christ came along. And when Christ uh, became the leader of Christianity, uh, you know, up to that time, the only other religion with a single deity was the uh, Jewish religion. Now, what do you think caused the change from uh, the polytheistic to the monotheistic? Do you think that was by design, or was that just a cultural change? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it happened. I mean, we just got to accept it. Oh, yeah. No, I just I didn't mean, know if you like, know. 
uh, you know, and all of a sudden these 6,000 years of, of revering these 12 leaders in various forms, uh, they become pagans. Yeah, it's a very interesting change. change. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world yeah. uh, is the Temple of Zeus in Greece. It was a statue of a 75-foot-tall Homo sapien and clad it in gold. Wow. And he was Zeus. But he was a Homo sapien. I mean, he looked like he looked like us. So what I'm saying is that we look like them, and, and we are part of them. They look, you know, they were depicted by whoever did them, saw them as uh, as um, Homo sapiens. Now, so if if Jesus was created uh, by well uh, by ET progenitors or yeah, extraterrestrials theoretically, then and that would mean that they had to have come back because there was quite a distance between uh, when they first created us and when they created him. So that, yes. that's a, yes. do you have an opinion on why that would happen? Uh, at least a theory. Um, no, I don't. And, and I, um, I would say, you know, 600 years later, like 600 AD, uh, we have uh, Muhammad uh, dealing with uh, Allah. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's, to me, uh, another story, and I can't tell you. Yeah, so perhaps there was an agenda there to change something in uh, in, yes. the, in the control mechanism. Just with the next well, bear, bear in mind, bear in mind, uh, you've hit on something there, Tim, that throughout the history of my reading about, through the translations of the two clans, the Yankee clan and the Enlil clan, is that they were rivals for power. Ah, and they had a rivalry that existed, you know, for thousands of years. So it stands to reason that, yeah, that there would be uh, factions vying yeah. to uh, change the the belief structure of the of the race of people. Absolutely, I'll give you a classic a classic example. Um, Sitchin refers to the atomic war of, of 2000 something BC, and the evidence is Sodom and Gomorrah. And the fact that the Samarian civilization was wiped out in a fashion of Hiroshima, if you read the story of, of how the evil wind left the desert of the Sinai and went north and, and east, and you know the atomic fallout and just wiped everybody out. And they made a mistake. You know, here, here are some highly advanced uh, people who have atomic weapons who should have known not to use them. They should have known about the fallout, and they destroyed the thing that they built, the thing that they were most proud of, which was the Sumerian civilization. They wiped it out. And at the end of my book, I described the dialogue as given to us by uh, Sitchin's uh, Lost Book of Enki, of how they dealt with it. And it's fascinating to uh, you know imagine this horrible thing happening because they were warring, it was actually their, their offspring, their children, their grandchildren that caused the war, part of the clan. And uh, it was all a battle over territory and power. Territory and power. They used us, you know, we, part of our, after we became the primitive workers, we became soldiers in armies. And um, <laughs> do you remember Homer's, uh, the Iliad? Yes, yes. Okay, and then if you read the, what this guy was saying about a, an event that took place, which was the Trojan War, he talks about the gods and how the gods were actually 
playing in the background, pulling strings to cause this to happen. Huh. That they dazzled, uh, what's his name, with Helen and got him to go get Helen and bring her just so they'd have a war. Huh. Now, Homer's, Homer's saying, you know, this is, everybody thought that story was kind of a myth. All of a sudden, they dug around in the part of the earth there, and they found Troy. They found nine levels of Troy. They didn't find the Trojan horse, <laughs> but they found pottery, Tim, with the pictures of the horse on it. Oh, really? Yeah. So, to me, I'm saying if Homer said that this happened, and everybody thought it was a myth, and all of a sudden we've dug around and found some evidence of it, what's to say that what he said about the gods wasn't also true? Exactly. So, uh, you know, there's uh, all kinds of interesting uh, angles to the story and, and why we um, are the way we are today, I think, is because we were genetically engineered uh, to, to be not as powerful as they are. But here's, here's another thing for you, Tim. I just thought of this. <laughs> They're space travelers. They came here and they had to do all kinds of huge mathematical calculations to get from A to B. We could not have landed on the moon or, or even started our space age without mathematical capability to figure out how to do that. And if we were just the product of evolution, I don't see anything in evolution that would have given us mathematical ability. There's no need for it. Yeah. So we must have got it genetically. We must have gotten this ability. And it's increasing because we're, we're, we're researching and we're discovering and our brains are able to comprehend you know, the angle of impact when you come back into the atmosphere so that you don't burn up. Very important when our shuttle comes back. Mm -hmm. That all that calculation, those computers and everything work so that uh, we don't burn up. We have to hit the right angle. And that's math. And we didn't get math, I don't think, except by inheriting it from uh, our, gene, our gene code. From the Sumerians, they accepted and, and uh, acknowledged that their their gods were from off the earth. Oh yeah, and from and obviously today that that's uh, that's a, a non-discussed concept except for in our circles of the mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. research. Right, exactly. Uh, now, where where along the line do you think that uh, that transition happened? At some point, it became hidden, and you think well. Let's go with that first, and then I'll go with the next question. Sort of okay, well, in, in the story of Gilgamesh, uh, one of the things I point out, there's five things that the story told us, but one of the things it told us in the beginning was that there was an interface between the Anunnaki and the people of Uruk because they were in trouble and they asked for help. And what they got from the Anunnaki were, was uh, Enkidu. Now, the second thing was that Ishtar. We have a statue of Ishtar. It was found in uh, ruins, and she's a 4,000-year-old replication of, of a person with a helmet that enabled her to go off the planet and up into the solar, up into the orbiting spaceship and back. In fact, the story of uh, Gilgamesh tells about her travels back and forth. So here we're being told that that can happen, and. Um, the weapon that she comes back with is um, pretty powerful. It's called the Bull of Bull of Earth, Bull of Heaven, and um, 
you know, that, that's kind of an indication that when she got really mad, she had the bull blow trench holes in, in Europe, you know, 200 foot holes in the ground, which people died into. <laughs> so, I mean, there are, there are indications of what they were capable of, and they're in the stories that were left to us. And I think it's important to look at it um, perhaps this way, Tim. If 100,000 years from now, we take off uh, to a new home we found someplace, and we look at everything, everything looks great except uh, there's something wrong, we don't want it, we're going to find something else, but there is a bunch of humanoids running around there, and uh, they're pretty backward, and they've, they've got all kinds of trouble. So why don't we help them? And the way we help them is we get their leader and we give them ten rules to live by. Yeah. And now that's, that's, that's very possible that we would do that. And that's called a transfer of technology or information that would be helpful to them. And, you know, the story in the Bible of Moses and the Ten Commandments uh, could be looked at in that, in that fashion. Do you think this was a human decision to keep the fact that the gods were extraterrestrials uh, from the general public, or was that an Anunnaki decision, or do you think that it was just that they couldn't quite understand the concept of um, of a being living on another planet and coming here? Well, okay. You follow what I mean? I know what you're saying, and, and the only thing that comes to my mind is Galileo. <laughs> you know, it's like... Uh, our understanding of what's going on, like only 396 years ago, Tim, uh, we were the center of the universe, and the sun revolved around us. Yeah. That was the story being told to us by the authorities in the church. And Galileo looked up through his little telescope and said, no, that's not true. We're not the center of the universe. We're just one little planet that goes around that star, that sun. And there's a huge thing out there. And guess what he got for his information telling House arrest for the rest of his life. He was by, it was by the Inquisition, by the way. The Inquisition said, you know, you want to recant what you said? And he said, no, I won't recant it. And he says, you know, Copernicus was right. This is, this is, I'm a mathematician. This is what's going on out there. And they said, okay, bang, in the slammer, into your house. You don't come out again. So the suppression by the authorities, at that time the authorities was the Roman Catholic Church, which uh, were scientists, they had scientists that uh, were studying things, but this didn't quite fit what they wanted it to be at that time. So that's the story that we lived with until, you know, all of a sudden we discovered Galileo was right. We've got this problem, and whether they anticipated that, whether the Anunnaki would anticipate that that would happen, I don't know. Uh, certainly, uh, the evidence that we have is all we can look at. Yeah. What they did, and what they left, and uh, what they they gave us. Moving on to the, the present-day UFO phenomenon, I'm sure you know some about that. So sure. I just wanted to ask you, uh, a lot of people I talk to, they're all about disclosure. I'm sure you know about that, disclosure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, with their point of view is they want disclosure of uh, the present UFO phenomenon. Absolutely. You know, and and obviously you want disclosure of, of your, your hypothesis. Yes. So what do you think, um, which one could come first? What do you think is the best way to go about disclosure? Would it be easier to tell uh, the people 
first that the extraterrestrials were coming here, or perhaps first tell them about the, the your theory and decision theory of the ET uh, progenitors, and then sort of lead them to, you know, and they may come back or something like that. Well, yes, I I, um, I would say that it, the story needs to be gotten out. Both stories need to be gotten out, and the uh, the fear that apparently uh, exists that the public couldn't handle it. Yeah, that's been around for a long time, but I don't think that's the reason, the real reason that uh, uh, scientists want to prove things. The scientific method is to prove uh, that you can replicate something over and over again, and therefore it's true. And uh, you know, they're finding that there's, uh, there's holes in the evolution theory right now. They can't prove where the DNA came from. And how it could be made. That's that's kind of a, you know, where do the seeds of DNA come from? There's um, all kinds of uh, phenomenon. I think that the, um, the people seem to believe the scientific community, Tim. Yeah. In other words, we're, we're again being led by those who think they know everything, <laughs> and they don't. Exactly. They're, they're, you know, I'm, I'm reading about the string theories coming apart and that Hawking's black hole theory, he's not sure anymore that that's true. And I'm seeing evidence in the scientific community that they're, they're getting a bit flustered about what they're trying to do. Our, our story, the story that you've pursued and I'm pursuing, I think is a story that will eventually be accepted. It has to be accepted because it's true. And uh, the proof of it is by all the things that are here that are, you know, pointed out in my book. And uh, if people would uh, would just, you know, take the time to look at some of the pictures and, and figure out that uh, that we couldn't do those things, then and then then by uh, deduction it has to mean that somebody else did, mm -hmm. and that somebody else has to be the people that they talked about in the tablets because the tablets are a recorded history of what went on, albeit written by the winners, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> come out the way they wanted to <laughs> in the apologies that they did. But um, our story is solid, Tim. I mean, I, you know, I wrote the book because I needed to prove to myself that this was a true story. Yeah. I, you know, Sitchin, Sitchin kind of gave me the, the framework to deal with, but I said, no, all right, how do I prove that? And everything that I've put in the book are things that I believe prove irrefutably that this story is true. And I hope people would, would take the time to look at the book or buy it or whatever they want to do to get the information and pass it on because you can show your friends these pictures and they're going to get astounded. Exactly, yes, that's for sure. I can attest to that. And, and uh, the other part of it, you know, the UFO phenomenon, which is certainly out there, is part of it. It's part of the story, and it, it just needs to be given legitimacy, you know. And, and it's, you know, to me, the thing that I was really ticked off about in uh, Timothy Ferris's movie that I told you about, Life Beyond Earth, yeah, is that these great scientists he brings together in this flick all say there's life out there. It's got to be. 
but not one of them was willing to put forward the fact that they'd already come here, that contact was made 450,000 years ago, and there were the products. I mean, if you want evidence <laughs> more than other than the stone things, look at us. Where'd we come from? Yeah. Now, we're so unique, Tim. Our, our uh, species is unlike any species on this planet. And uh, if you think that Homo erectus took a million eight hundred thousand years to evolve to his state, which was he couldn't talk, and he, he hit two stones together for his tools, in two hundred and fifty thousand years, when we, from the time our first skeletal remains are found in Africa at the gold mines where they said they did it, we're walking on the moon. <laughs> Now, how does a species go in the short time of 250,000 years to do this? It just has to be another explanation other than evolution. And do you think a generational uh, change will help usher this uh, line of thought into um, mainstream? However long it takes, Tim, it'll happen. Uh, and by the way, I'm not the only one that's involved in this. It's a, it's a dialogue that's been going on now for a long time, and it'll continue to go on, and people will add to it, and there'll be more things written about it, and eventually it'll surface up to the level of national attention where it, where it deserves to be examined. And I think the school thing might be the wedge that we could use to get the thing into the uh, mix, because many, many school boards are wondering how they're going to resolve this issue what they're going to teach our children. And if our children are not taught the truth, and not taught all the facts, then we're going to have problems. Exactly. So this, this is sort of an, uh, this, uh, this way of thinking actually bridges the two sides. Yeah, it brings them together, actually, because each is half right. And the genetic engineering theory uh, encompasses both because we did come from a, a species that was evolving, the uh, Homo erectus, it's a creature. And uh, we appeared because we were made the way we were made by, in the image of our creator. I mean, they, they say it in the Bible. So what it'll really take is, is a brave person to stand up and say, hey, this is, we need to consider this. Yes, yeah. this is the Absolutely, Tim. <laughs> if you can find anybody at MIT there. <laughs> It would be great. I'll see what I can do. Okay. Um, now, you work, you've been in contact with Sitchin, I understand, right? You, you yes, yes, I, I'm in contact with him all the time. What's, what's the extent of your work with him? Just correspondence, pretty much? Yes, it's, it's very interesting. He's a charming uh, gentleman who lives in an age without a computer. He has no email. Uh, I write him letters, I talk to him on a telephone, and um, he's still typing on a, a hunt-and-pick typewriter. No kidding. Yeah, no, the letters, I'll show, I can show you one day the letters I got from him. And I, I really feel, you know, part of my, I, I, I'm on another mission besides getting this story out, I want to get him a Nobel Prize. For oh, really? Oh, yes. No, he's, uh, he's done... So much more than some guy that I found that they gave a Nobel Prize to back in 1902 it was a German who uh, translated a bunch of coins from Rome to tell what the history of the Romans was. I mean, that was his whole thing that got him a Nobel Prize. 
Sitchin's gone way beyond that. And Absolutely. So that, that's another, you know, avenue of my endeavor. And how did you, how did you even come upon Sitchin in the first place? Just uh, through your own research? Some of yes. Yes. Yes, I was, uh, <laughs> I was desperately trying to put together my uh, question about Genesis, which is in the front of the book. And the other thing that really bugged me was that Moses came down the mountain with horns. And that story said, I have something screwy about that. And there's a page in my book, you'll see it towards the end, where I show where the horn thing came from. All of the Anunnaki leaders had helmets with horns on them. They were from the, uh, the astrological sign of Taurus. That was their thing. So they all uh, emblazoned their helmets. Even Ishtar has horns on her helmet. Huh. And so did uh, Anu. And if you look at the cylinder seal, VA-243, you'll see Enki and Anlo self-portraits there with horns on their helmets. Well, they made a leader out of Moses. Took him up the mountain and, you know, gave him this, the words. And uh, this whole thing about him coming down with horns was a sign of leadership uh, to me. I mean, that's my story. <laughs> and so that, that, was, that was the thing that, that drove me to find out how this all fit together, you know. And then, and, and then you, you uh, read the Stitcher books and you just got in touch with them and, and was receptive to uh, dialogue? Oh, yes. Yes. And he still, he obviously, he still stands by all the stuff he wrote and everything. And, and oh, yes. yes. Further research. He continues lectures. He, has, he just had a meeting in Chicago and uh, in uh, Florida, and he has a group of people that he, he, he gives lectures to. And then if you go to his webpage, www.sitchin.com, yes. you'll see a bunch of articles on the left-hand side of that page which deals with everything that's happened, including the recent uh, discovery of the planet that they call the 10th planet, which it really isn't. But Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, too. And I'm glad you mentioned that because... Um, Obviously, you're in the you're dealing in the realm of the tenth planet, and this is mm -hmm. uh, recently the news came out that they discovered a tenth planet. Even though I think that news had come out years earlier too. Yes, they keep Back discovering. In yeah, they keep discovering tenth planets. Um, what do you what's the what what do you think is going on there with that? Is that a are they trying to discredit the whole uh, the the real tenth planet? which we know of as... Uh, no, no, what's happened is that our scientific ability, Tim, has, has improved. You know, the new two, two new telescopes, the Hubble and the uh, Spencer, which is infrared uh, satellite, infrared, uh, is seeing much further. We're, we're, we're poking into the Oort belt now, which surrounds our, our sun. And there's a bunch of stuff in there that uh, is hanging around that, that's coming out, and they're, they're seeing it. But this is um, this is not new. This is just uh, our science uh, catching up with with history. And um, um, my take on this is that I went back and researched the historical sightings of the of Nibiru. Uh, the Babylonians saw it. The Hebrews saw it. The Hindus, the Egyptians, and the Greeks. And uh, they they gave it different names. Um, the uh, Nibiru was what the Sumerians called it. The Babylonians called it Marduk. And uh, the Hebrews called it the Winged Globe. Hindus, Tetra, Yuga. Egyptians, the Celestial Disk. And the Greeks called it Nemesis. Now, 
the story of, of the problems that happened uh, gravitationally when that thing comes and passes between um, Jupiter and Mars every 3,600 years, uh, you notice it. <laughs> you <Exactly>. record it. <laughs> it. It does things. That, you know, and so we have a history of, of, of civilizations that have recorded its appearance. And then we also had the 1983 stories in the Washington Post and the New York Times where they, um, they found it with their infrared astronomical satellite. So it's there. Um, Discover Magazine uh, cover story November 2004 says uh, the new solar system. And it shows Sedana, which is the one they found before they found the tenth. And then they call the they back in the they have planet X or the tenth planet as big as Mars, and then beyond that they have planet Y halfway to Alpha Centauri. We're gonna discover that our little system of nine planets is not really nine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I might as well, I should probably ask you because I've, I've heard all kinds of station skeptics and, and, and wannabe debunkers, and yes, I'm sure you've heard them. What's your take on that? And, and they, they usually assert that he's translating wrong. Yes. So well, that's easy to I'm do because the, the Samarian language is made up of, um, um, you know, you can interpret some things five different ways. So it's easy to make that assertion, but none of them have done the scholarship that he's done. If you read his books, uh, the bibliographies are huge and uh, filled with uh, the people that he's used. And he has taken, the one thing he's done is he understands the cosmology of what they were talking about. In other words, he's able to interpret what the translations mean because he's not blinded by uh, preconceived ideas. And as far as those who, uh, you know, wish to defame him, uh, you know, there are all kinds of people out there that are uh, saying, like, you know, we never landed on the moon, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. So I don't, it doesn't bother me. In other words, I, I personally, Tim, am, am fully satisfied that his work is magnificent, that he is on the track of what actually happened, and that my book was the proof uh, of the things that, that he said, that, that I connected the dots. In other words, I took all of the uh, factors that, that were involved that he's talked about, and I went and examined them, and I found other things about them that, uh, for instance, did you know that the pyramid that has the snow-capped peak at Giza? Do I know of it? Well, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Did you ever ask yourself why those stones don't fall down? Do I know of it? Well, you've seen it, right? Oh, absolutely. Did you ever ask yourself why those stones don't fall down? Come on, give me a break. <laughs> and they just don't know how, how they can't make it, huh? That's right. That's I mean, with all of our technology today, simple thing like a mortar, it's a glue, and uh, they did it. Hmm. And in my book, I quote Petri's uh, take on that because he, he was a, a very, very famous Egyptian uh, anthropologist and, and studied everything about it, and it's the thing that amazed him the most. It was like an optician working in the scale of acres, yeah, just to fit the stones, and then to put glue in the joints 
it's, 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 it's unimaginable. I know, yeah, it's, it's, sounds very hard. Hmm. Well, it's one of the things, one of the many items that I refer to in my book that are proof that we were, they were here, the Anunnaki were here, and that they left us this heritage of, uh, Things that they did which had reasons to be done, not as they had for their own reasons they did it, but they, they left us information. You know, the pyramid is filled with mathematical stuff. Oh, yeah. If you've done, you know, the studies on the circles and uh, hypotenuse and Pythagoras and pi and phi and <laughs> that stuff that uh, was way before that was ever invented. And I, I believe that people will get a feeling from my book, Tim, that this is, a, this is a story that's worth uh, discussing with, with other people and looking at and, and getting the concept down because I've kept it simple. I made it kind of like Life magazine and there's pictures and, and stories and evidence and the evidence is overwhelming. When you put it all together, when you finish reading the book, you, you've got a wow-wow. And I, I would assume that that would be your your long-term goal for the book was to make it an educational tool. To, yes, uh, uh, libraries are ordering it now. I'm getting orders from from libraries that are in Saginaw, Michigan, and St. Louis County Library just ordered it. Awesome! Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like you know the word's getting around. So, and I'm I'm dealing with the, some pretty important people in Kansas who are involved in this debate on the uh, what to teach the kids in the classroom, and that's really what I want to get to. I want this to become uh, not a textbook as such, but at least an item that gives them a choice. And what most school boards are opting out of the uh, the battle by saying, well, let's just present both sides and let the kids decide what they want to decide. Well, if they're going to present evolution and creationism, they've got to pre present genetic engineering. It's absolutely key. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. And you're helping us, Tim. I mean, you, you know, you with your beautiful uh, page and your stories of, uh, of contacting the, the, the movers and shakers in the media world. In other words, you're, you're part of the media world, and the media world is where we're going to get our power to get the story up. Well, I do my part, you know. Well, you do more than your part. Well, thank you very much. I just want to thank you very much for giving me the time to speak with you and, and really well, it's go. It's my pleasure, Tim. I, uh, I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate the chance to uh, share the information with your audience. And the book is Adam, The Missing Link, and the website is adamthemissinglink.com, and you can get the book through there, and Amazon, too, or no? No, not yet. Not yet. No. All right. Just got our ISBN number, but uh, we're still just at the webpage, www.adamthemissinglink.com. And, and yeah, there's, three, there's three things. They can get a, an e-book download. Yep. They, can get, they can get the hard copy, and they can also get a CD I made of the story of Gilgamesh, which is kind of an interesting uh, item. Nice. Do you, do, what, do you read it? No, actually the CD plays like a, a movie. Oh, okay. The, it's like it's a play on your computer. It's a CD-ROM, and it has uh, the story in an understandable version. Of uh, I've, I've made it so that people can understand and understand uh, hopefully why we got this story. You know, he's the first action hero. <laughs> he's really quite a dude. Uh, Two-thirds Anunnaki. You know, his mother was an Anunnaki princess and his father was a human, which is kind of the other way around from the way it mostly happened. And how, how old are you, Marshall? 
If you don't mind me asking. Not at all. Give me a rough number. What's that? 76. You're 76? Yes, wow. You're a pretty hip guy for a 76-year-old. Well, I try to stay with it. <laughs> I'll say. You, yeah, I, 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 just from the phone call, if I didn't know you went to Caltech in the late 1940s, from it says in your bio, I probably would have. Yes. I probably would have guessed you were in your late 40s. So you, you, you were uh, Well, thank old. you. I, you know, I, I try to stay young in my head. That's the only thing you can do. Your body's going to age on you, but your brain will always stay active and young if you keep pushing it. Exactly. Well, I think you've done a lot of great work for uh, for the whole AET progenitor theory, and I think that I think your book's really going to help out a lot. Well, uh, thanks. I'd like to leave you with one quote from my favorite author. Okay. John Gardner. Uh, life has many chapters. Learn all of your life. All right. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. The book is Adam the Missing Link. The website AdamTheMissingLink.com. Marshall Klarfeld, thank you very much. You're welcome, Tim. Thank you. That about does it this week for Been All of America Audio Season 1. I want to thank Marshall Klarfeld very much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. I want to thank Leslie and Chiron of BenAllofAmerica.com for your continued support and work on the, the website. And all the great listeners out there in uh, Been All of America Audio Land. If you're listening to this and uh, you've been enjoying the download so far and you're into the podcast thing, I should point out that we have the podcast URL available at banalofamerica.com. So check that out. And if you've found the audio and you want more banal, you can simply go to banalofamerica.com. B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Thanks for tuning in this week. Next week, Terry Hansen, UFOs and the media. This is going to be a knockdown, drag-out conversation. It is awesome. I had a blast talking with Terry Hansen. We covered all different aspects of UFOs and the media, and uh, I think it's a very important edition of Been All of America Audio Season 1, so you're going to want to check that out next week. Thanks for listening. This is Tim and all, signing off.